0: Uh, and then, will you start making your way to 1 Kings chapter 8? We're going to continue on in our study of 1 Kings. I want to remind you where we were a couple weeks ago. It's hard to be excited when you don't really understand what's going on. Uh, it's hard to be joyful when you're not super familiar with the circumstances. You don't really truly get what's happening. It's easy to be bored. It's like being at a, a wedding when you don't really know the bride and groom. Or it's like Clash of Clans. It's unexciting when your town hall's level one and you don't even know about heroes yet. It's hard to celebrate. It's hard to enjoy the moment and be happy when you're lost, when you're not sure what's going on. My kids are swimmers. I don't know how that happened, uh, but they are into swimming. And I can tell you as a parent that swimming is painfully boring to watch as a sport. Uh, It's hard to be excited. Listen, I love my kids, but it's hard to be excited about what's going on with the the team, Uh, mainly because you just have no idea what's going on. There's a scoreboard, but it just displays the time of each race but every swim meet there's all these teams competing and we know that there is a score sometimes they win sometimes our team does really well but we're just there watching we don't know who's winning or who's losing it's just race after race after race after race after race i love you tad of course we cheer for our kids but listen, it's like a minute-long race, sometimes faster because Tad swims fast, and there's only two or three of those over like six or seven hours. And so there we sit, just unexcited, watching. problem, though, is simply ignorance. A kind parent showed us a, a few weeks ago an app that keeps track of all the points and everything that's happening and it updates after every race and it's like this live scoreboard right on your phone and it's brilliant <laughs> it's a game changer because it gives us something to cheer for and root for that information that knowledge it turns a boring moment into one that is so much more enjoyable and two weeks ago we crossed into first kings chapter 8 and all the building of the temple all the measurements All the decorations, all the gold and copper and all that stuff, it finally came to an end. The temple is finished and it's time to celebrate. It's time to have a a party. It's time to enjoy God for what he has done. And just like weddings or swim meets, it's hard to celebrate God when we just don't understand who he is. It's hard to celebrate him when we, we don't understand what he's done or what he's like. Again, we just can't celebrate or be excited about what we don't know. It's it's hard for us to have joy in something we don't understand or someone that we don't really know. That perhaps is one of the biggest hurdles For young people, when they think about God, when it comes to their relationship with God and having genuine joy in the Lord, because they just don't know who he is, they're bored. It's unexciting. But I think the problem is that you just don't really know him. You don't know really what's going on. That might be where you're at this morning, struggling to find the importance of being at church. Is this over yet? Can we leave struggling to worship God? You you don't really get it. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you're at a a big party and you don't even know who the party's for. You're at a a championship game, a, a Super Bowl, but you don't know the teams. And so you're uninterested. Maybe you're thinking, who cares about god this morning you don't have joy in a relationship with god and you feel like i don't really want one if that's the case i can guarantee you that if you understood god better that that would change if you understood him far better than you do right now your joy in him would increase so very much would go through the roof. This room couldn't contain the joy that you would have understanding God the way that you're meant to. And so I just want to go back to this amazing chapter we started two weeks ago. Our big idea is just going to be the same thing. Our joy in God is connected to how well we know him, to what we understand about him, to the way that we think about him, all that is going to be connected to our joy, our excitement, our desire to follow him and be with him, all connected to what we do or do not know. Maybe you don't care about God, you don't want to celebrate him, you don't, you know, you have very little desire to follow him and trust him. Again, I know that would change if you knew who he was, if you knew him better. And 1 Kings chapter 8 can help us so much. It's a wonderful celebration. It's again, just the dedication of this temple that Solomon had built. And it's in this moment that we get to listen in. We get to hear Solomon talk about God. It's a prayer, but it just comes from what Solomon knows about God. And in it, we learn why Solomon's joy is what it is in God. And it built on some amazing truths that he knew about who God is. So if you want to know God better, 1 Kings 8 can absolutely help. If you want to improve and have more joy in the Lord, a study like this in 1 Kings 8, again, it can help. What did Solomon know about God that led him to to praise God the way that he did? What did he know? What did he have in his mind that helped him to have such joy in God? Well, we're going to find out. And if you can see what Solomon knows about God here, if you can understand it and you can embrace it, I promise you your joy in the Lord will grow more and more. Solomon, likely from the wisdom that God had given him, he understood some marvelous truths about God. And and I want us to look at those again this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 to 13. It was the, the first paradox of several here in this chapter. And paradox, just a fancy word that means two truths that seem to be Opposite of each other, like they're in, they just can't get along. These two things can't be friends. They can't go together. They cancel each other out. But really, upon further investigation, you realize that they're both very true. That's what a paradox is. Last time we talked about how God can be both hidden and also revealed. I'm not really going to go through it again, but there we just saw that God's glory is always hidden. Throughout Scripture, we never get this full picture of God, but certainly at the same time, God is not a mystery to us. God gives us his word, and through that, we have everything that he wants us to know about him. It's true. We cannot see him. He's hidden. He's too glorious for us. But that doesn't mean we know nothing about him. He's also very much revealed. We have so much here in Scripture that we can study to understand God as much as he wants us to know about him. And so we need as, as much of the picture as God's willing to show us. He's both hidden and revealed. But let's press on in our chapter, paradox number two. Solomon has immense joy in God because he knows this, God's perfect past gives him confidence for the future. God's perfect past gives him confidence for the future. You can go to that next slide, Daniel. God has a perfect record of keeping his promises. I'd say it that way. He has a a perfect past. And God will also continue to be perfect, or you could say he'll have a perfect future. Perfect record in the past confidence of a a perfect record in the future we'll explain that in a second for now let's just start reading in verse 14 God's word says this then the king faced about and he blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing and he said blessed be the Lord the God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand saying since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, You shall not build the house, but your son will be born to you. He will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I've built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 21, there I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father, David, that which you've promised him. Indeed, you've spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant, David, my father, that which you've promised him saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you've walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant, my father, David. Before we talk about how this is a paradox, let's just go through the, the details quickly because I I get it. I know we've been talking about this for Eight or nine weeks now, when we read this, it feels very distant and it feels like, what is this about? So let me just explain it a little bit. The first several verses here, the past is being rehearsed by Solomon. He's recounting and talking about and remembering all the promises that God had made to David. There they are, the, the promises that Solomon knows that God made to his dad, to his father, David. Verse 17, David wanted so badly to build that temple for God. And God said, that's a, that's a good thing. I'm glad that that's in your heart, David, but it's not the right thing for you. It would be a job for your son. So God promised And then God delivered, just as verse 15 says, what God spoke with his mouth, his hand accomplished. What he said he would do, he actually did. And then verse 19 and 20, it just sort of begins this checklist. God said to David, your son will take your place. Check. He said, your son will sit on the throne in your place. Check. And he said that your son would build this temple or this house of of God. Check. God promised God delivered. That's the whole point. Not only do we see it in verse 15, but also in verse 24, it says again, you've spoken, God, you've spoken with your mouth and your hand has fulfilled it. Clearly in Solomon's mind is a truth that drove and motivated his joy in the Lord. And it's a truth that all of us Even in junior high, we're never too young to learn this. What God says he will do, guess what he will do. In the past, for Solomon, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness, faithfulness to keep his promises. And that leads Solomon then to consider the future. Is he scared? No. Is he undone? No. Is he worried? It doesn't seem like it. Is he some anxious ball of nerves on the floor? Not at all. Look at verse 25. He says, Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you've promised him. God has been so true to keep his word, and Solomon only asks that God's faithfulness would continue on. Keep keeping your promises. That's what he's saying right there. Solomon expects that God would keep true to what he's been, that his faithfulness would keep on, that it would still be on display in the future, just as it has been in the past. Solomon says, God, I trust that you're just going to keep doing what you've done. I have no reason to doubt, no reason to be nervous. God's perfect record in the past, that doesn't undo Solomon. That doesn't give him any reason to doubt what God can do in the future. It, it doesn't lead him to think God must be on the verge of failure soon. because he's been so perfect, because he's been so true to his word. Solomon doesn't expect disappointment. Rather, he expects more of the same, more faithfulness. As Solomon has seen in the past, God's promises as they've become a reality, so Solomon expects the same faithfulness to be at work in the future. Let me say it this way. God's perfect past, it gives confidence in a perfect future. Why would this be a paradox? Well, for us, making mistakes is inevitable. For us, Uh, it's, it's, it's a reminder of just what humans do. It's what we know. It's an unavoidable part of life. We can't be perfect. And so when we hear of someone's perfect record, we start to get nervous. We start to think, okay, this can't last much longer. Baseball when somebody's pitching the perfect game everybody gets really freaked out and they're like can he keep this up can he keep it going why because we expect that any moment this perfection will come to an end as those innings go by the more likely it is that that pitcher will not accomplish perfection or maybe think of it this way if somebody made five free throws in a row, how good would you feel about him making the next one? Pretty good. What about 10 in a row? What about 50? What about 100? As that number increases, we start to feel like the more likely it is that they will fail. You don't like sports? Let's try a spelling bee. How many words can you spell in a row before you're like, this kid's going to miss sooner or later? I don't even know that these were words, first of all. I think people tend to believe that the longer someone is perfect, the greater and higher the chance that that streak will end in the future. We think, oh, it's just a matter of time now. It's going to fall any minute. That streak can't continue. And we have a, a huge problem of thinking God must be just like that. But that's what we know surely God is the same way. He's been so good to me in the past. I see it, and I'm sure any moment he's about to be done with that, right? But not so with God. That is not what Solomon is saying here. Not at all. People may be that way, but not with God. Solomon knows that that perfect faithfulness of God in the past, it's only proof and motivation for confidence for tomorrow. He loves it. What God has done in the past and his faithfulness to keep his promises, just as he's talking about, that doesn't worry Solomon. That doesn't make him think, surely God's perfect faithfulness will end soon. Nope, it only makes him more confident in the future. God's faithfulness in the past, it gives Solomon such security for the next day. And it's highlighted in the very center of Solomon's prayer. Look at verse 23. He said, "O Lord, the God of Israel, There's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant and showing this loving, loyal love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. Who've kept with your servant, my father, David, that which you've promised him. Indeed, you've spoken with your mouth. You've fulfilled it with your hand. This truth about God, Solomon knows it makes God unlike anyone else. There's just nobody like him. There's no God like him. There's no person like this. Not in heaven, not on earth. That's certainly true of the false gods that the people of of Solomon's time would have been so caught up with. They had the worst reputation. There's, There's no one like God, no God who has a perfect past. Those false deities, they were known for their their poor promise-keeping. They were the opposite of trustworthy. Those false gods were, were, were dodgy and, I don't know, they were shady and sus, I think it's what you say. The longer they appeared, here's the point, the longer those, those gods in their day appeared trustworthy, the more likely everybody was like, oh, this is coming to an end soon. These gods are going to do something to trick us or take advantage of us. That's why those people believed in magic so much. They needed some sort of power to offset the, the certainty that the gods were not trustworthy. doesn't bother me. That's how they ruled. And, and of course, the same is true for, for people. No one can keep promises like God can. Despite someone's past, no matter how good they may be or how perfect they may be, no one is perfectly trustworthy for tomorrow except God. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his covenant, as Solomon says. He's always showing his loyal covenant love towards those who are his His faithfulness in the past. It only gives us confidence for the future. And knowing that and learning more of God's faithfulness in the past, it'll lead you to the same words as Solomon. You too will say what you have said you will do, God. I know you will do it. What your mouth has said, your hand will do. And how you've been in my past, I can trust you'll do the same in my future. Your perfect past, it aligns perfectly with tomorrow. The confidence I have that you'll continue to be the same. And just like Solomon, you'll say, God, you're incomparable. There's just no one like you. And if we can get there, if we can believe those words, well, it's impossible to not have more joy in God. It's impossible when you know him like that to, to not love him more and want to worship him and want to follow him when you understand God the way that Solomon did. I want to quickly just look at one more. Verse 27, we'll go super fast. Number three, God is uncontainable, and yet God is also accessible. Those two things are hard to put together. Look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Look, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built, Solomon says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you've said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel When they pray toward this place, he's talking about the temple here in heaven, your dwelling place Hear and forgive that verb here. It's just on repeat in these verses and it's an intentional teacher for the reader. Solomon wants us to know and not miss that God hears prayer. In fact, Solomon asks that God would just continue to hear him and hear the prayers of his people and to listen to them, to listen to their pleas for grace and help. Yet, verse 27, it shows the difficulty of this reality. God is so immense. He's so big, so massive, so beyond us that even the highest heaven can't hold him in. God feels claustrophobic in heaven. Like being in that elevator right behind us with 11 people. You want to get out quick. No, God's not really claustrophobic, but it's just a description of how big he really is. He cannot be contained. His size, just impossible to put boundaries around. And yet this God is also so near that he hears your prayers. And that should make your brain hurt a little. How can he be both? Because he wants you to know that he's both. Verse 28 begins with that little conjunction, but or yet, and it just changes everything. God is so very, very big, but he's also so very, very near. He can hear your prayer, verse 28 says, and his eyes upon you night and day, as verse 29 says. Often we can think of one or the other. God is this massive God, uh, God. he's our creator, he's so big so above so beyond us but we miss out that he's also this God who can hear this God who can see you he's massive yet you can pray to him and plead to him you can cry out to him and even verse 30 it shows this little paradox right here Solomon and the people pray towards the temple yet God hears their prayer in heaven in his dwelling place He's accessible through the temple, but he's yet uncontainable. Heaven, just too small for him. It can be hard to imagine that this God who's so big and so powerful, yet you have access to him. And that's something that we understand so much better because of Scripture today than people in Solomon's day did. We no longer need the temple Hebrews chapter four says, we have a great high priest and he's passed through the heavens. His name is Jesus, the son of God. And because of him, we can hold fast to our confession. And because of him, we can draw near, it says, with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Jesus permanently opened this access to the Father. You have access to God even though He is so uncontainable, even though He's so big and massive in size that the heavens can't capture Him or hold Him, but you have access to Him because of Jesus. You can pray to Him here or at home. You can pray to Him in a car or on a boat. You can pray to Him in Santa Clarita or Sandusky, Ohio. I'm going to stop because I'm starting to feel like Dr. Seuss. You can pray for forgiveness and you can pray for salvation. And when you do, despite his his massive size Solomon notes, he's going to hear you. He's going to see you. You can pray for grace and cry for help. And just as that author of Hebrews says, only there at his throne will you find the mercy and the grace that you're looking for. We have to understand these incredibly important truths about God. There's still so much more in this chapter to look at, more complex truths about God, but we have to understand them. I'm going slow on purpose. We're we're hitting the brakes just a little bit, but I want you to see how important it is that you see God like this. If you only see him as a massive and hidden and a future uncertain because of him, if you think of him like that, no wonder you don't want to be near God. Or on the flip side, if you see him as this teeny tiny little pocket-sized God who's just there to help you and get you out of trouble and he's like your little personal gene, no wonder. You don't fear him and love him and worship him the way that you should. You don't understand how amazing it is that this God, in all of his glory, sent his son to die for you. When you see him like this, those promises and truths become beyond rich and beyond sweet. We need this picture of God. The better you understand him, the greater your joy in God will be. Father, thank you for this morning, for a few minutes to just grow in our understanding of who you are. Thank you for a passage like this in your servant Solomon, who unpacked so helpfully and clearly some incredible truths about you. God, we need this picture of you more I pray that this reality would impact our hearts, that these junior hires would be changed knowing you better, understanding you fuller. God, that day would be drawn to you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for our church. Help us to still listen and pay attention and give our ear to you this morning. God, we are grateful to be here, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.